Scripture text for today is found in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. John 20, 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Before I pray for the message, I want to give glory to God and thanks to you. Yesterday at our uh, leadership team meeting at the office, we heard the news that Glory of Christ, sometime in November, uh, gave more money this year than we've given in any other previous year in our history. And I was just so touched by that, not because of the dollars themselves, but because of the faith and generosity they imply. Dollars come and dollars go. Can I get an amen to that? But God is working in us, beloved, and I am inspired by your faith. I'm inspired by your generous spirit. I really am. I really mean that, and I'm thankful to God for you. So let me just pray now and give God glory and pray that he would continue to provide for us as we seek to glorify him in Elk River and beyond. Our Father, we're so grateful for your generous spirit that you have put upon us. You are the God of all abundance. You are the God of all provision. And I'm so grateful that you not only bring us to yourself, but you make us to be like you. You make us to be overflowing people. You bless us to be a blessing and not just to be blessed. And in this way, you bring us deeper and deeper into your joy. And I'm so grateful for that, Father. And I'm so grateful for the abundant provision that you have made to this church. It looks like we're going to have a $30,000 surplus this year by the glory of your name, by the power of your hand. And I'm so grateful for that, Father, and I'm so grateful for the other funds that you have raised as we move toward a, a facility in the near future, and I pray that you'd continue to stir in the hearts of your people to do that. Father, we still need 59,000 more dollars, and I pray that you would provide another 80 so that we can do more build-out and more reach-out so that we can preach the gospel of peace in Elk River and throughout the nations of the world so that your name would be exalted and your people would be edified. I thank you, Father, for what you have done and I pray, Father, hopefully not presumptuously, but in faith, I pray that you would do even more. Oh, Father, cause us to be like you and along the way gain much glory for yourself. And now, Father, as we turn our hearts to your word, I pray that you would speak to us. I am amazed that you have us in this particular text on this particular Sunday. And so as we turn our hearts to the word, I pray that you would do a great work in our midst. And I thank you for what you will do now. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name, amen. Peace be with you. Simple words to say, easy words to understand. But when those words are spoken by Jesus over his people, they have enormous meaning, they have life-giving power, they have resurrection force. When Jesus speaks those words over his people, peace be with you, they become the foundation of the commission that he gives to us 
They become the foundation of the spirit that he gives to us. They become the foundation of the authority that he shares with us. Peace be with you. When those words proceed from the mouth of a normal person, they do have meaning. And I think they do have effect because words matter and words impact people, don't they? It matters what we speak to people and how we speak to people. But when those words proceed from the mouth of Jesus, they have infinitely deep meaning and eternally significant effect because of who he is. Jesus is very great, and therefore the words he speaks are great. And when he says, peace be with you, to his people, it really matters, beloved. It has a tremendous effect. And so I pray this morning that we will grow in our understanding of what these words mean, but I also pray that we would experience their power as we watch Jesus speak these words over his people so long ago, and as we hear them, hear him speak those words over us right here, right now in the city of Elk River. I pray that the peace of God in Christ would touch every room in this heart, every heart in this room, and I pray that the peace of God in Christ would equip us as a people to go into the world and preach the gospel of peace. The Lord may just do an amazing thing in our midst today, beloved. So let's give us, give him our totally undivided attention now. On the morning of his resurrection, on the very first day of the week, which was the dawn of the new creation, Jesus in his grace appeared to a woman named Mary Magdalene. She was weeping outside of his tomb. She had no idea what had happened to him. But there he appeared to her, and he transformed her profound grief into an unexplainable joy. And when he had done that, he then gave her a mission. He sent her to do something. He told her to go to the core of his disciples and tell them everything that she had seen, tell them everything that she had heard. He wanted them to be encouraged. He wanted them to know his peace. He wanted them to have his joy on the morning of the resurrection. But the disciples still did not understand the words of God. The disciples still did not understand the words of Jesus. And so when they heard Mary's report and saw her exuberance, they still did not believe. They simply could not wrap their minds around the things that had transpired that morning. And the reason they could not understand is because they had not listened well to their Lord. And because they had not listened well to their Lord, because they did not understand his words, you know what they were doing? They were gathered together in hiding for fear of the Jews. They were concerned that the same people who put Jesus to death might also come after them, arrest them, imprison them, flog them, and crucify them. In his grace, Jesus tried to prepare them for this moment. You remember what he said to them? He looked them right in the eyes and said, let not your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Believe in God, believe also in me. But they were deaf to his words because their hearts were filled with unbelief, beloved. Because their were, hearts were filled with unbelief, they were huddled together in grief, in pain, and in anxiety. On that morning, they were as I said, overcome with grief rather than faith. And on that evening, they were in the same exact state. By the evening of that same day, they were locked together in a house near Jerusalem. Peter was there. Even though he had seen the tomb, he was there. John was there. 
Even though he had seen and believed to some extent, he was still confused, and so he was there hiding from the world in fear. Judas, we know, had forsaken Jesus. Thomas, we see in verse 24, was not with them on that night. The other eight disciples were there. Perhaps some others were there with them as well. But whoever was in that room, here's what happened. As they were huddled together in fear, anxiety, and grief, Jesus suddenly appeared in their midst. Boom, there he was right in front of them. John doesn't really tell us how this happened. He just tells us that it happened. Maybe somehow Jesus persuaded somebody to open the door for him. Don't know. Maybe the same angel who rolled the stone away from his tomb also unlocked the door to that house for him. We don't know. Perhaps some suggest Jesus, because he had been resurrected, the nature of his body was different and somehow he actually mysteriously passed through that door. Some would have us think that Jesus sort of dematerialized and rematerialized in that room. And indeed, later, the Apostle Paul teaches us that the resurrected body is different than the pre-resurrection body. He teaches us that the body that is sown into the ground is natural, and the body that's raised from the dead is spiritual. But in that part of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the resurrection in a very broad sense, and he's not talking specifically about the resurrection of Jesus. So it may be that somehow Jesus miraculously passed through a locked door, but then again, as soon as he had done that, we're going to see in just a moment, he pointed to the physical nature of the wounds in his hand and in his side, and Luke tells us also in his feet, he pointed to the physical nature of his body as proof that it was actually him. And it seems to me that the physical nature of Jesus' post-resurrection body really matters to him. He wanted them to know that he had physically raised from the dead and not just spiritually raised from the dead. This is a very important point. Jesus was physically incarnated into this earth. Jesus physically lived on the earth. Jesus was physically crucified on a cross. Jesus was physically buried in a tomb. And Jesus was physically raised from the dead. This was not just a spiritual thing. And so it seems to me that the physical nature of his post-resurrection body was very important. This is why I think Luke gives us a little bit more detail. And he tells us that Jesus said this to the disciples that evening. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So at the end of the day, I don't know how Jesus got into that room. Any, anything is really possible with God, I suppose. It seems to me that the physical nature of his post-resurrection body was really important, but at the end of the day, we don't know. Here's what we do know. While the disciples were locked away in fear of the Jews and wondering what in the world would become of their lives, Jesus stood in their midst. Jesus gained access to them. And I take so much courage from this. I take so much joy in this because this teaches me that no matter what I do to try to lock myself away from God, he can get to me where I am. No security measures that I take to say all visitors are unwelcome. God can get past all of those measures and say, Charlie, I am here. My people, I am here. My disciples, I am here. When Jesus appeared in their midst, you can imagine that the disciples were pretty startled. They were scared. 
And so I think this is why Jesus began by taking a breath and saying to them, peace be with you. In that day, as it is in this day among the Jews, this greeting, peace be with you, was very common. Shalom Aleichem. They say it to one another all the time. But in this case, I don't think Jesus was just giving a normal greeting. Hey guys, how's it going? Good to see you. I think Jesus was speaking to them much like angels had spoke to people in the past to calm their fears and prepare their hearts for what he was about to say. Centuries earlier, an angel from the Lord appeared to Gideon and Gideon was scared. And so the angel said to him, Gideon, peace be with you. Do not be afraid, you shall not die. A couple centuries later, another angel appeared to Daniel, the prophet, and Daniel was scared. Daniel dropped to his knees and the angel said to him, oh man who is dearly loved, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. The Lord has come to speak to you. In both of these cases, this term, peace be with you, was meant to calm fear and prepare the heart to hear what God would have to say. And I think that's what was happening here. Jesus was trying to calm them down. And besides the fact that they were startled with his presence, if you think about it, they had other reasons to be afraid of Jesus as well, did they not? They had other reasons to be afraid of his heart toward them. Earlier in his ministry, they had made astounding promises to him of how brave they were going to be, how courageous they were going to be, how faithful they were going to be to him. They would be with him to the end. All they wanted, after all, was to sit at his right hand and his left, right? And in exchange for that, they would fight, they would die even for the glory of his name. But when the chips were down and Jesus was arrested, one of them forsook him, another denied him three times, nine of the others scattered to the wind. One of them remained faithful to the end of his crucifixion, but then even he went into hiding with the other disciples for fear of his life. And there they all were, 36 hours after the crucifixion, maybe by now more like 48 or 50 hours after the crucifixion, hiding in fear of the world and in unbelief toward God. I hope you can understand that Jesus had every right to appear to them and judge them, rebuke them, Of everyone in the world, he had prepared these disciples for this moment and their faith utterly failed when the chips were down. They had reason to be afraid. But beloved, Jesus, here's his character. This is revealed back in Exodus, but it's perfectly descriptive of who Jesus is today. He is the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious And you want to hear some good news about him. He is slow to anger, and he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is patient with his people. And so when he stood among the disciples who were scared by his presence and scared of all that had transpired, scared surely of their failures, maybe even gripped with regret for their failures, he begins by speaking these powerful words to them, peace be with you. Oh, how I would have loved to hear those words right from his mouth. But when he spoke them, you know what he did next? He showed his wounds to them to prove to his beloved that it was actually him. He's showing them his physical wounds. Luke told us, tells us, as I read just a moment ago, he even told them, come touch me. Touch my hands. Touch my side. Touch my feet. See that it is me. And I want you to understand that Jesus is trying to prove several things to them. 
He wants them to know that he was the one who actually died and that he actually died. He wanted them to know that he was the one who was raised from the dead and he had been raised from the dead. He wanted them to know that he was not just some spirit that appeared to be like Jesus, but this was Jesus standing in their midst. Even the secular Romans of that day believed that gods could appear to people and angels could appear to people and and seem to be this or that. So in the disciples' minds, it's not that they didn't recognize him, it's that they had a hard time believing it was actually him. So Jesus said, come, touch me. Let me prove myself to you. Let me show you that it is me. And I, again, beloved, I just think this is enormously gracious. He has no obligation to prove himself to anybody, especially to people who had committed their faithfulness to him and then failed him. But this is our God, patient and faithful to the end. And so he draws near to them. And again, I just want you to let this soak in. He doesn't just say, look at me. He said, come and touch me. Come and see for yourself. Oh, how intimate a moment this is, beloved. He is proving himself to his disciples. He's speaking his peace over his disciples. Before all this had transpired, he told them, peace be with you. My peace I leave to you. And because I give you my peace in a way that is different from the world, do not be afraid. Do not be troubled. And yet he knew that they would be troubled. And so he visited them again, and he spoke his peace over them. And oh, the power of that moment for his disciples. When they had heard his words, and when they had seen his wounds and touched his wounds, the disciples were persuaded that this was Jesus. In other parts of the New Testament, we see that some of them still had doubts. I mean, it would have been a confusing moment, that's for sure. But overall, they crossed over a massive divide, and they believed, beloved. They knew that it was Jesus, and John says that they were glad. The Greek word that he uses there is more of what they call a passive voice. It means that something happened to them. They were made to be glad. Something happened outside of them that was applied to them, and when that thing was applied to them, their hearts rejoiced. Jesus was now speaking his peace over them in a way that would profoundly affect them forever and ever. Jesus told them, beloved, in John chapter 16, he said to them, listen, you're going to be sorrowful. In in essence, he's saying, I've already told you, don't let your hearts be troubled, but I know that your hearts are gonna be troubled. I know that because I know you still lack faith, but be of good cheer because I am gonna turn your sorrow into joy and nobody will be able to take your joy away from you. Here in the room of that locked house, the disciples began to experience this transformation from sorrow to joy that can never be taken away. And I promise you, that if those 10 disciples that were there in that room that morning and maybe others with them, if they could stand in this church with us today and testify, they would tell you that over time they struggled with the experience of joy. Sometimes they were up, sometimes they were down. I say that with confidence because we have writings from them. We hear them telling stories. We can see when Peter's having a good day. We can see when John's having a bad day. We can see these things, and yet the source of their joy remained. Jesus Christ himself, the risen Lord, and since the source of their joy remained, their joy increased as their faith increased. 
The more they understood the Scripture, the more they understood the words of Jesus, the more they believed and simply relaxed their self in Him, the more they found joy. And I promise you that if those disciples could stand with us today, they would tell you that they have now inherited an everlasting joy that no one can ever take from them. And I say that with utter confidence because Hebrews 11 tells us as much They are now a part of the cloud of witnesses that are testifying to us about the faithfulness of God and encouraging us to trust in his words and put our faith in him and know his joy. Beloved, what I'm trying to tell you is that the Lord fulfilled his words to his disciples and if they had understood his words before the fact, they would have had his peace all the way through the process. But even though they did not, in his grace, Jesus spoke his peace over his people, and in this way, he gave them his joy. Now, having calmed and comforted his beloved ones with his words and with his wounds, he said to them again in verse 21, he repeated his words, peace be with you. This time, I think he means something deeper by the words. First, he was just trying to calm them down. First, he was trying to prepare their hearts to hear what he would have to say. And once he had calmed them, it's as if he gets their attention and says, now listen carefully to me. I want to say something to you. And he just repeats himself, peace be with you. What I think he's doing now is he's applying to them what he had just accomplished for them. He is washing them lavishly with the peace of God in Christ. So I want to take just a couple of minutes to talk about what exactly it was that he had just accomplished and what exactly it was that he was wanting to speak over his people through these four simple words, peace be with you. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter nine, I wanna read several longer texts with you because they're so clear about what it is that Jesus did here. That author obviously says it a lot better than I possibly could. So I just wanna lead us through three things that Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, and that he is now seeking to apply to his disciples. Hebrews chapter nine, in just a second, we'll begin reading in verse 11. But first let me say that through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus made the once for all sacrifice for our sins so that everyone who believes in him is completely and eternally forgiven and set at peace with God. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what he applies to us when he says, peace be with you. You are reconciled to God forever. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11, the author writes, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with his hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Now look down at verse 26, Hebrews 9, 26. But as it is, 
he, Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What did Jesus accomplish through his death, burial, and resurrection? He did what 1,400 years of animal sacrifice could not do. He made the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and now there is a way for humanity to be made right with God, and that is to believe in Jesus Christ. When you believe in him, his sacrifice is applied to you, and you have eternal peace with God that no one can ever take away from you. This is what is meant by salvation. This is what is meant by eternal redemption. This is what is meant by eternal life. And this is what Jesus wanted to speak over his disciples. Just put yourselves in that room with them, beloved. They did not understand what he had just done. And he's shooting the first shot over the bow, if you will, to say, disciples, I want you to understand that I have just reconciled you to God. Peace be with you. Second thing, through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus not only saves us from sin, but he promises to absolutely sanctify everyone who belongs to him and believes in him. In other words, he'll move us from a place of struggling with sin to a place where we are utterly and perfectly holy as he is holy. He guarantees this work inside of us. And I don't know about you, but there are days in my life and weeks in my life where I wonder, is that true? There are times when I struggle so powerfully with sin, I wonder if I'll ever be free from sin. But in moments like that, I have to look to my Lord and understand his words and believe his promises. Through his blood, he guarantees my holiness and yours. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 10. Hebrews 10, 10. The author writes, And by that will, which is the will of the Father for the Son, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been made holy by his sacrifice. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And here's the key sentence now. For by a single offering, he has perfected, past tense, for all time, all those who are being sanctified. Present process. Are you hearing the word of God? Are you seeing what Jesus accomplished for you? If you belong to him and believe in him, he has already sanctified you, past tense, and now he is slowly but surely sanctifying you. He's slowly but surely helping you to become who you already are in him. Peace be with you. He has won your holiness for you. He will apply his holiness to you. This is what he was trying to communicate to his disciples. Third thing, through his death, burial, and resurrection. 
Jesus didn't just deal with sin, but he actually destroyed the power of the one who has the power of death. That is the devil himself. This is one of the most beautiful and ironic moments, probably the most beautiful and ironic moment in the history of creation where the devil thought he was getting over on Jesus and he had no idea he was actually being destroyed by Jesus on the cross. Isn't that amazing? Through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, here's what Jesus did. Let me just read for you from three places. It's gonna be too hard to flip back and forth, so just, just listen now. Here's what Jesus said before his resurrection excuse me, before his crucifixion. He said, now is the judgment of this world and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking about the devil. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I will release people from his power. Paul later came along and said this in Romans 6, 9 through 10. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again, and death no longer has dominion over him. Death has zero power over Christ, for we know that the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And the clear point is this, that if you're in Christ, you have also died to the dominion of death. It's over for you. And now the life you live, you live to God. And the life you live to God through Christ, you will live forever and ever. Peace be with you. The power of death has been broken off of you. One more time from the author of Hebrews. Such a rich book. I can't help but going to him again. This now from Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of these same things, so that through his death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear were subject to lifelong slavery. Beloved, I would never stand before you or anybody and say that the devil has no power. I think me compared to him, there's no match. I lose 10 times out of 10. But compared to Jesus Christ, he is nothing And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that Jesus has destroyed him. He has destroyed his power, and he has destroyed his ability to enslave people with fear. And the only reason we continue to struggle with fear is because we don't believe. Like the disciples of old, we don't understand the scripture and the words of Jesus, and our hearts are still filled with unbelief. This is why we still are shackled in fear, but fear not. God can get past your shackles, amen? He can get to where you are. He can speak to your life. Maybe even this morning right now, say to you, peace be with you. You're free, you're free. I really believe, beloved, with all my heart I believe that the second time Jesus spoke these words, he meant these deeper things, knowing that in that moment his disciples would not understand, but later they would understand and later they would write about these things. He wanted to apply to them everything he had accomplished for them. And so again, he said for the second time, peace be with you. As he had done with Mary Magdalene, so now he did with the other disciples, namely, on the foundation of the peace he just gave to them, he now granted them a commission. If you look with me at John 20, verse 21, Jesus next said to them, 
As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Those words probably sound familiar to you because Jesus prayed those exact words in John chapter 17. And the way it was there is the way it is here. Jesus is saying, in the way that the Father sent me, now I am sending them. Or actually, he's now actually speaking directly to his disciples. And he's saying, the way the Father sent me, I'm now passing this on to you. I'm treating you the way the Father treated me. So how did the Father send Jesus? God the Father sent Jesus into the world out of the overflow of the profound communion that they share with one another and the peace that they have with one another. The mission of the Son in the world was the overflow of his love with the Father and with the Spirit. And when Jesus came into the world, he preached the gospel of peace. And when he preached the gospel of peace, all who belonged to him believed in him and came to have eternal life through him. That's how Jesus was sent into the world. And so now he's saying to his disciples, I'm going to do the same thing to you. Out of the overflow of the communion that I have just won for you, out of the peace that you now have with God, I'm going to send you into the world to be a preacher of peace. I'm going to send you into the world as ambassadors of reconciliation, proclaiming to the world from the heart of God, come now and be reconciled to God. Come now and be at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of the overflow of peace comes this commission. Beloved, the call to go into the world today, into the city of Elk River today, and preach the gospel today is not a call that has to do with duty or obligation. It is a tremendous privilege and it is the overflow of love and peace. Jesus has reconciled us to the Father. And so out of the overflow of that reconciliation, of that peace, of that love, he sends us into the world. And I think that that is just an amazing privilege that he gives to us, unbelievable privilege. He is essentially enfolding his disciples into the fellowship of the Trinity, and that ought to just take your breath away. But as glorious as it is, and as much of a privilege as it is, it's actually impossible in the flesh. Any of you who've tried to win a person to Christ in your flesh will know it is impossible, right? I once heard John MacArthur say that the job of the church in preaching the gospel is not to overcome consumer resistance as if we're some kind of corporation but we're trying to raise the dead. And I'll tell you something, there's only one who has the power to raise the dead, and that's the Lord himself, amen? We have no power to raise the dead, but the Lord gives his spirit. He knows that this commission is impossible. So look at the next thing he says in verse 22. Having said that to his disciples, he took a breath and he breathed it out upon them. He breathed upon his disciples. And when he had breathed upon them, he said the words, receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit. The word here for breathed is the exact same word that's used in Genesis 2-7, where God the Father breathed life into Adam. You remember that moment? He had created him, and then he breathed life into him. It's the same exact word that's here. At the dawn of creation, God breathed life into Adam, and at the dawn of recreation, Jesus is breathing life into his disciples, and he's granting them his power. See the connection. This is why I said to you at the beginning of the message that when Jesus speaks his peace, it is filled with life-giving force. This is what I meant. He speaks life into his people by giving his peace to his people. That's what he does. This is the same word that was used by Elijah 
by the Lord of Elijah. When the prophet Elijah laid his body out upon a young boy who had died, and Elijah went there to pray for that boy, and by the wisdom of God, Elijah laid his body upon that boy's body, and it says that he breathed into the boy, and the boy came back to life. This was the resurrection breath of God. It was not Elijah who raised this man from the dead. It was the, glory, it was the glorious God who used Elijah to raise this boy from the dead. Same thing happened to Ezekiel when he went and saw that valley of dry bones as he looked it over. Vast and overwhelming as it was, the Lord said to him, Ezekiel, breathe upon the bones, breathe upon them, and they'll come to life, and that happens. The same exact word is being used here. Jesus breathed upon his disciples with resurrection power, beloved. They had died in their sins, but now he was raising them again before the Lord. He was reconciling them to God forever. And having given them his commission, he was now giving them his power. Receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not just some impersonal force, but it is the very presence of God with you. Stunning to me that from his peace comes his commission and from for his commission comes his presence and power. This is the connection between his words. And there's one more thing. If you look at verse 23, those words there might seem like a random thought or maybe a, a bit of a distraction, but they're anything but that. Here's what Jesus said to them. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus, with these words, entrusted his people with the authority to forgive sins and withhold forgiveness from sins. I hope that takes your breath. I hope you understand how stunning that is. Earlier in his ministry, you probably remember, Jesus healed a guy that was a paralytic. The guy could not function, and he spoke a word, healed the man, the man got up and walked around. An amazing miracle. But Jesus said that he did that in order to prove that he had an even greater authority. And that much greater authority was to release people from the consequences of their sins before God. That was an outrageous claim and it angered people. So how much more outrageous is it that Jesus now turns to his disciples and grants them that same authority? How outrageous is that? It's one thing for a man who is God and who has never sinned to have the power of forgiveness over sins, but now Jesus entrusts people who are just people and who have been forgiven much sin with this same kind of authority. So what's going on here? And how do all these pieces connect? Well, I think that this is what Jesus is up to in this text. He came into the world to reconcile sinners to himself, and he did that. He laid down his life, he was buried in a grave, he was raised from the dead, and now he was appearing to his disciples and encouraging them, giving his peace to them, and stoking the fires of their faith. Peace be with you, he said. And then he told them that he was gonna send them out into the world. And the reason he was sending them into the world, beloved, was to preach the gospel of peace. They were gonna have to go out into one nation after another and tell the people about Jesus. And when they told people about Jesus, two things would happen. Some people would be cut to the heart and believe. Other people would be hardened in their heart and they would not believe. In other words, as the gospel is preached, the problem of sins becomes immediately present. To preach the gospel is to deal with sin. 
And so when Jesus sent his people into the world, he gave them power to preach, but he also gave them authority to finish the job, to deal with sin. And here's the authority that he gave to them. We see it in Peter and in others who preached later. When people did believe the gospel, humble their hearts before the Lord, Peter and others pronounced to them, you now have eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. When people hardened their hearts and refused to believe, people like the Apostle Paul looked at them and said, oh, how hard are your hearts? If you, know, if you do not repent, the wrath of God surely remains upon you. In other words, he withheld forgiveness from them by the authority of God. In order to preach the gospel, you must deal with sins. This is why Jesus gave authority to his people, plain and simple. Now, I do want to be clear that nobody has the inherent authority to forgive sins but God, nobody. This is not a matter of saying that Jesus puts us on our level, puts us on his level and makes us as if we are God. I'm certainly not saying that. But I don't know how you escape the force of these words. He's entrusting his inherent authority to us so that we share in it with him. We're becoming partners with him in dealing with sin in the world. It's really stunning. And so in our lives, maybe even this Christmas season, we'll deal with people and we'll preach the gospel to them. Maybe somebody will be cut to the heart and believe. We as a people of God have the right to say to them, your sins are forgiven. Because we're not speaking from ourselves. We're speaking from the scripture. We're speaking from the authority granted to us by God. And if someone we talk to about the gospel refuses to believe and hardens their heart, we can rightfully, authoritatively warn them that they are in danger of the wrath of God. We can do that. And God promises that as we properly discern his will and apply that to the lives of people, that he is gonna honor our pronouncements. That just takes my breath away. Now I say our pronouncements because Christians throughout the centuries, for the most part, and especially in the, in the Protestant wing of the church, we have almost universally acknowledged that Jesus in granting this authority to those early disciples was essentially speaking to his church as a whole. In other words, he was not just telling the apostles that they had the power to forgive sins. And we don't have time to go into this. I really wish we had another 30 minutes we could give to this so that I could show you what I mean because I think this is really important. But let me just point you to a couple scriptures and encourage you to look them up, up later. Later, one of the apostles, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, told the church, instructed the church about how to make judgments with regard to sin. And he told them, listen, don't you know that you as the people of God are going to judge the world? And if that's not enough, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? Don't you know this? By the way, just to let you know, when I've read that at times in my past, I've scratched my head and said, Paul, no, I did not know that. I did not know that the people sitting before me, this, this simple body of Christ in Elk River, Minnesota, that we would be lifted up to judge men and angels. I did not know that, but Paul declares it. And Paul's point is that in practicing dealing with sin as a body, you become equipped and competent to deal with sin in the world. He's an apostle, beloved. If he thought that the authority to forgive sin was only given to apostles, he would have taught that, but he didn't teach that. James, another apostle in James 5.16, said that the church broadly ought to confess our sins to one another. 
He did not say that we are to confess our sin just to the apostles or just to the leaders of the church. He said, confess your sins to one another. And the reason he said that is because we're supposed to help one another deal with sin. John himself in 1 John 5, 17 and 18, we'll look at this later this year, taught us how to deal with sin in our midst because he knows that the authority for this has been granted to the church. And again, if he, the shepherd of the churches to which he wrote, thought that the authority of forgiveness belonged in his hands alone, he would have said that, but he did not say that. He instructed, rather, the church of how to use their authority together. Finally, if we go back to the source himself, Jesus, in Matthew 18, the Lord had already taught his people how to deal with sin when a brother or sister sinned against one another. He already said that. Why would he grant his wisdom for dealing with sin if he did not also grant his authority for dealing with sin? Beloved, it's a stunning thing to think about, but the Lord has actually given this authority to us and he wants us to grow up in maturity so that we'll know how to handle it well. As we preach the gospel, we will have to deal with sin every day in the world and in the midst of the church. It's just part of our lives together. And to the extent that we properly discern the will of God and apply that will to people, God will honor our pronouncements. And I just hope you can see, hope you can see the stunning nature of what Jesus is speaking over his people. Here is John 20, 19 through 23 in a nutshell. Four words, peace, commission, power, and authority. Peace, commission, power, authority. On the basis of the peace that he won for us, He gives his commission to us. And in order to accomplish this commission, he gives us the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And as we go out in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, he authorizes us to deal with sin because preaching the gospel is all about dealing with sin. Peace, commission, power, and authority. All of this is in a nutshell what Jesus is up to in John 20, 19 through 23. And I pray that you will see just how pregnant with life and meaning these words are. Peace be with you. It's really amazing to me. I probably, after 30 plus years of walking with the Lord, should not be amazed by things like this. But it is amazing to me, the timing of the Lord, that he has us talking about this particular passage on this particular day. In two days from now, we'll stand before the Elk River Planning Commission And if they give us their permission to build out this building and occupy it over there by the Marcus Theaters, then almost certainly the Elk River City Council will say the same thing in January. And if they say that in January, then it will be time for us to draw up detailed plans and put together our labor force and raise the final bits of money that we need and go together and take that land. That's what it will be about. And as we draw nearer and nearer to a 24-7 building, I think the Lord wants to shout to our hearts that this movement is not about a building. This movement is about his mission in the world. The Lord doesn't want us just to move from one corner to another. The Lord wants to outfit us so that we can better exalt his name, equip his people, and preach his gospel of peace in the world. Maybe today, Jesus wants to speak these words over us in a fresh and powerful way. Glory of Christ, fellowship, peace be with you. And my commission be with you, even as uh, the Father sent me, so I am sending you into the world. And as I send you into the world, I give you my spirit to preach with my power. And as you preach the gospel with power, I authorize you to deal with sins. When people repent, 
comfort them with forgiveness. When people refuse to repent, warn them, lovingly warn them about the wrath that is to come. Oh, beloved, perhaps the peace of Christ has had a great effect on your heart today. I hope that that's true. But I want you to know that Jesus speaks his peace over his people as a people. And I have been praying for the last couple days that he would powerfully speak that peace over us right now and give us his commission and give us his power and give us his authority. So let me pray for the work of God in our midst today. Our Father, I love you and the more that you lead us together, the more I just come to trust you profoundly. Just amazes me the timing that you have, that you would have us in this text on this particular day. And Father, the sermon has been preached, the words have been explained, and I pray now that you would simply move among us in power. Speak your peace over us, Jesus. Give your commission to us. Grant your spirit to us. Grant your authority to us. And in all that, we pray that your name would greatly be glorified, that your body would be unified, that your body would be edified, and that the people of our city and even of the nations would hear the gospel of peace. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on that day so long ago. Thank you for what you are doing this day right here in our midst. And thank you for what you will do in the coming months and years. In your great and gracious name, we pray these things. Amen.